I want to start by sharing a little bit about myself. My name is Cor Shemaleski. I'm the pastor of Outreach and Assimilation. And I want to share with you a little bit about my own story of coming to faith in Christ. I was a freshman at the U of M, and I made it all the way until about April, before the wheels started coming off and my life was kind of doing the fall apart thing. I was, uh, up to that point, there were certain things in my life that kind of were the foundation. And a couple of those were football, sports in general, school, trying to do well at school, and then also some close friends. And by April of my freshman year at college, some of those things started falling out of my life. I was no longer able to play sports competitively. Um, I was switching majors because I couldn't hack it as a chemical engineer wannabe. So I was quitting there. And then also, uh, one of the guys that I went to the U of M with, his name was Neeraj, our relationship had become strained. And he was like my friend, like the guy I leaned on. And so when our relationship became strained, it made it difficult just to operate, just to function. And I remember very clearly, uh, one April afternoon, lying in my bed and just feeling all alone. Because at that point, you know, I'd, I'd been raised in the church, and at that point, I believed in God. I believed He was there. I just wanted to know that He saw me and cared about me. And so I prayed very simply. I didn't know what words He I just said, God, if you're real, I want to know. You know, show me that you care for me. And uh, that is a prayer that God will answer, and he did, like in the next day and a half. A guy called me up from uh, an organization, a student group called Campus Crusade for Christ, and he said, hey, do you want to talk about God? And I was like, whoa, <laughs> wow, answers come quickly. So we set up an appointment, and I got so nervous that I ditched out, like I like, he called up to me, and he's like, hey, I'm downstairs. So I come down, and I like look through the window, and I saw him. I was like, ah. so I ran back to my room, and he was persistent, he called me up, and we ended up getting together, and he talked to me and shared with me uh, what's called the four spiritual laws. Um, this is a tool that's used to present the, the gospel message of Jesus Christ, and he took me through that, and, you know, I, through that time, I, he put some pieces together that I had, uh, you know, kind of accrued going to church, found out that God does love me, he does care about me. But the problem is, is that sin, my sin, my selfishness and my pride, it fractures that relationship. And he like stayed there for like, like an uncomfortable 10 minutes, just like, you're toast. I'm just going, I'm toast. And he's like, you're toast. And I'm like, well, I don't want to talk about God anymore. <laughs> and then we flipped the page and he told me about Jesus Christ and how Jesus came to restore that broken relationship with God. And I was like, this is fantastic. This is awesome. And I ended up, uh, after he left, I was too nervous to do it with him there, but after he left, I committed to following Christ. Now, what I come to find out is that this guy, his name is Vince, he had just flown back from Turkey. I come to find this out, like, after the fact, like, months later, that he had flown back from Turkey. It was something that had come up within his family, and they had been counseled to leave the mission field, they were serving as missionaries in Turkey. They had been taught or, or they had been counseled to leave the field to deal with this family issue. And it's not typical, it's very atypical of a student group like Campus Crusade and other student groups to go out looking for people, to connect with people during the spring. The big push is in the fall 
when students are starting to get plugged in, but by the spring, most of the people have found their relationships, found who they're going to hang with, and so this was very rare, I come to find out, that he would even be out on campus looking for people to connect with. But I was one of them. And he came all the way from Turkey to talk to me about God. Just incredible circumstances that allowed me to hear the gospel message at a time when I needed it most. And today, we're going to look at Paul, and he just goes through incredible circumstances, just incredible circumstances surround this story. If you want, you can uh, join me. We're continuing on in our study of the book of Acts. It's called The Church on Fire. That we, that's been our sermon series. It's a study of the Acts of the Apostles. And Paul is a follower of Christ, and he's going through a lot right now. And we've been looking at that in recent weeks. Turn with me to Acts chapter 23. You can look in your own Bible or at the sermon insert. Man, the type is getting really small in that sermon insert. But, uh, or it'll be on the screen, and sometimes that's the easiest. We'll begin in verse 12 of chapter 23. This is how it reads. The next morning the Jews formed a conspiracy and bound themselves with an oath not to eat or drink until they had killed Paul. More than 40 men were involved in this plot. They went to the chief priests and elders and said, We have taken a solemn oath not to eat anything until we have killed Paul. Now then, you... You leaders in the Sanhedrin, petition the commander to bring him before you on the pretext of wanting more accurate information about his case. We are ready to kill him before he gets here. But when the son of Paul's sister heard of this plot, he went into the barracks and told Paul. Then Paul called one of the centurions and said, take this young man to the commander. He has something to tell him. So he took him to the commander. The centurion said, Paul, the prisoner, sent for me and asked me to bring this young man to you because he has something to tell you. The commander took the young man by the hand, drew him aside and asked, what is it you want to tell me? He said, the Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul before the Sanhedrin tomorrow on the pretext of wanting more accurate information about him. Don't give in to them because more than 40 of them are waiting in ambush for him. They have taken an oath not to eat or drink until they have killed him. They are ready now, waiting for your consent to their request. The commander dismissed the young man and cautioned him, don't tell anyone that you have reported this to me. It kind of reads like a great novel. You know, that's kind of the way I worded it in the sermon insert right there. Like an oath is taken, kind of this assassination plot is construed. And they even get corrupt leaders to come in and be a part of this. If you remember... There were certain people within the leadership of that day that sided with Paul. They believed that there was a resurrection of the dead, like Paul was claiming, like Jesus rose from the dead. But then there were the other group of leaders that said, no, 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 we disagree with that. And this band of 40 men, they take a solemn oath not to eat or drink. So this shows their determination. This guy is toast. What we need to know is that exceptions were made in situations. Certain people took oaths, circumstances changed, and they got out of that oath. And that's probably what happened with these guys, because we, we will know at the end of the story that Paul's not killed. That Paul's not killed. But look at, the, look at the circumstances, the wild circumstances that surround this story. A nephew comes on the scene. We don't know anything about this nephew. This is the first mention in Scripture of Paul having relatives. In Philippians 3, it talks about 
Paul losing all things when he came to follow Christ. And one of those things is probably family. That he believed that Jesus was the Messiah, this person who was going to come as part of the Jewish faith, that we were waiting for. And he said, I believe that's fulfilled in Jesus. And there are a ton of people said, no, no, no. And they were opposed to him. And it's believed that his family probably disowned him because he believed in Jesus. And we, we've seen earlier in the book of Acts where all of his Jewish friends who were on his side have now tried to start killing him. And so we can, we can be assured that, that Paul is alone in this. And so to have his nephew come on the scene is a big deal. And Hamlet and I were talking, we're like, how did this nephew get here? You know, how is he in Jerusalem? How did he get by the people that were like forming this plot? Because I'm, I'm thinking, if I got a plot plan to kill somebody, I'm going to be pretty secretive. And so how did this guy find his way in there and get himself in position where he could hear, oh my gosh, that's, that's my uncle. Oh my gosh. And he's going to you know, go and actually do something about it. Just the circumstances of that happening are kind of crazy. And so what are the odds of something like that happening? Pretty small. So we're going to keep going here. With that in mind, we're going to keep going. Just wild circumstances surrounding this. Verse 23, then he called two of his centurions and ordered them, get ready a detachment of 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, and 200 spearmen to go to Caesarea at nine tonight. Provide mounts for Paul so that he may be taken safely to Governor Felix. When he wrote a, le he wrote a letter as follows, Claudius Lysias to his ex excellency, Governor Felix. Greetings. This man Paul was seized by the Jews and they were about to kill him. But I came with my troops and rescued him, for I had learned that he is a Roman citizen. Stop right there. Do you remember what happened? Previously, we talked in, in weeks before how, like, this commander had him arrested and was, like, prepared to flog him. And then he found out he was a Roman citizen and set him free. So uh, Claudius is kind of changing the story here midstream. And he continues on, verse 28. I wanted to know why they were accusing him, so I brought him to their Sanhedrin, their ruling party. I found that the accusation had to do with questions about their law, but there was no charge against him that deserved death or imprisonment. When I was informed of a plot to be carried out against the man, I sent him to you at once. Because this is a big deal, right? If Paul gets killed under this commander's supervision, the commander could lose his credentials, lose his position, lose his life even. Continue on, I also ordered his accusers to present to you their case against him. So the soldiers, carrying out their orders, took Paul with them during the night and brought him as far as Antipatris. The next day they let the cavalry go while they returned to the barracks. When the cavalry arrived in Caesarea, they delivered the letter to the governor and handed Paul over to him. The governor read the letter and asked what province he was from. Learning that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will hear your case when your accusers get here. Then he ordered that Paul be kept under guard in Herod's palace. The crazy circumstances keep going here. It's not just that his nephew uncovered this plot to have him killed. It's that he goes, talks to Paul. Paul... He's in the barracks. He's kind of 
He's kind of this prisoner guy. And he talks to a centurion who actually responds to his request to have his nephew be heard somewhere else. The circumstances of that are very uncommon to have a prisoner. Can you imagine just a prisoner in our, in our present day jail system? Prisoner, make a request, and that person who is the guard goes and actually responds and does something for him, takes, takes a nephew, takes a relative, takes some bit of information to a higher up. It's pretty uncommon. And so to have that happen, but now look at the infantry that's being compiled for Paul. 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, and 200 spearmen. That's a lot of people for one guy. The circumstances this just continue to grow and get wild. The commander writes... Uh, to Felix. Felix is the governor of a, a greater area. This commander is in charge of a little area. This, so the governor is in charge of a bigger area, bigger, higher up, more important. And the commander's thinking, if I can get this guy to him, then I don't have to worry about him anymore. And that's what it, three weeks ago, four weeks ago, five weeks ago, that's what he's concerned about, is just bringing peace to his little area. And so he's going to send him away. I called him uh, Commander Suckup. Is that bad? He's been, he's been like my guy. I've really like bonded with this commander because I just feel his pain. Like he wants to bring peace to his area and then Paul comes and there's this uproar and he just is like, I want to get to the end of this. Paul, what's your deal? And he's gone through all these things and none of it has brought it to a conclusion. And so I've been feeling for this guy but then he writes this letter and he totally just lies. He's just like, you know, I've been taking care of this guy, Paul. I wanted to know why they were accusing him, you know. And he doesn't add the part about, like, I was prepared to flog this guy even though he's a Roman citizen and I shouldn't do that. He doesn't include that. But he, he writes to His Excellency, Governor Felix, and provides this, this letter, this kind of uh, words that would, would hopefully get Paul out of his hair. And it works. And they get this large contingent of group to take him. But do you notice at the end of it, where we end up in verse 35, the, uh, the governor says to him, I will hear your case when your accusers get here. Then he ordered that Paul be kept under guard in Herod's palace. Our poor guy Paul here, he's traded one confinement, gone through all these crazy circumstances to get to another place of confinement. Now granted, it's probably a step up from the barracks to Herod's palace. It's probably a little bit nicer conditions. But in the end, these, all these awesome circumstances have landed him back to a place of confinement. Strange. Crazy that a nephew would uncover that. Crazy that a commander would respond, listen to his nephew and respond and provide this large infantry to protect him and to get him to another place. Strange that Paul, after going through all this, ends up in the same spot. Weird circumstances, crazy circumstances, seemingly random and by chance. Well, I want to take a little time to discuss a theological issue, God's providence. And that's a big word, but it just talks about how God relates to his creation, how God relates to all that he's created. You and I, people, nature, we're going to take some time and look at that a little bit. And we're going to tie it back into this story, just the strangeness of these circumstances that surround this story.
I want to ask you right now, what is your understanding of circumstances? There's several ways you can view circumstances. One is to have a, a, a view of deism. Deism, it's a big word, You're not, you don't have to remember it. But basically, God got this thing started, he created it, and now he's just kind of hands off letting it go. That's, a, a deist would believe that that's how circumstances are created. God creates and then he just kind of hands off and lets, things, lets the ball keep rolling. Okay? Pantheism is that crea- creation is actually a part of God. Somebody who is uh, a pantheist believes that creation is a part of God, that they're connected, that the creation isn't distinct from God, but rather they're connected. Another view is that things are just by chance, complete randomness, a roll of the dice. What is your understanding of circumstances? The fourth one, fate, determinism. For you Star Wars people, the force. Some, some impersonal power, you sense a disturbance type of thing. The fifth view, and the one I'm going to argue for, argue for is God's providence. Circumstances come about because of God's relationship with his creation. Real quickly, this is the, all this information, you can find it in a book, Wayne Grudem's Systematic, Systematic Theology book, copyright 1994, published by Zondervan, pages 315 to 354, just so I don't get in trouble. That's where their next bit of information is going to be coming from. Okay, there's, within God's providence, there's three big pieces, and we're going to go through these rather quickly. First one, preservation. This is defined as God keeps all created things existing and maintaining the properties with which he created them. God keeps all created things existing and maintaining the properties with which he created them. Big thing, all you need to know is if God created a dog, the dog's going to keep being a dog because God's going to keep it being a dog. Does that make sense? You got a piece of paper, it's going to keep being a piece of paper until you light it on fire or something else changes it, and God's the one who keeps it being that. Okay? Preservation. This is captured in Colossians 1.17. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. God holds all things together. He preserves them. The second one is concurrence. Within God's providence, preservation, and then concurrence. This is defined as God cooperates with created things in every action, directing their distinctive properties to cause them to act as they do. That was big. Okay. God cooperates with created things in every action. You and I, he cooperates with us, directing their distinctive properties to cause them to act as they do. This is captured in Ephesians uh, 1, verse 11. It says that God works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. He has a will and he works things out in conformity with that. Wayne Grudem adds the note that no event in creation, no event, nothing, no event in creation falls outside of God's providence, outside of his relationship with his creation. Nothing. Nothing. Let's take a look at nothing. Not snow, rain, ice, or lightning. Job 37. Not snow, rain, ice, or lightning. All that within God's relationship with his creation. Not grass growing, Psalm 104. Not the birds being fed, Matthew 6. 
Not the roll of a dice. At that time, it was casting lots. That's covered in Proverbs 16.33. That's covered in God's providential control. Not the beginning and ending of entire nations. Acts 17. The beginning and ending of entire nations is within God's providential control. God's relationship with his creation. No event in creation falls outside of his providence. Nothing. Continue on. This includes you and I. Not just created things out there, nature, um, other random events. It includes you and I. Psalm 139. All the days of your life were written in God's book before one of them came to be. You're included in this thing. You and I. Proverbs 16.9 says, In his heart a man plans his course, but the Lord determines his steps. 1 Corinthians 4.7. A question is asked. What do you have that you did not receive? Answer, nothing. Nothing. God has been there and given you everything. No event in creation falls outside of his providence. And I know I'm creating questions in your mind, but hold those. And the third thing, the third category within God's providence, government. This is defined as God has a purpose in all that he does in the world and he providentially governs or directs all things in order that may accomplish his purposes. He has a purpose in all that he does in the world, and he providentially governs or directs all things in order that they may accomplish his purposes. Look at Romans 8, verse 28. It talks about God causing all things to work together for good to those who love him, to those who are called according to his purpose. God works all things. He's not just care. He doesn't just care about your spiritual life. He cares about your entire life, every detail of your life. God works in all things. Now, this begs a lot of questions. You know, if God has providential control, do I have choices and do those choices really matter? How does evil play into this whole thing? Yeah, not going to go there. Not going to go there today, okay? So uh, if you, if you want to tackle some of those, take Hamlet's theology class in LDI. I have some questions for us to consider. Given this little teaching and, and the, the teaching of Scripture, I want to ask you very plainly, what is your view of circumstances? How do you understand the circumstances of your life? The circumstances of Paul's being imprisoned and having his nephew come and foil this plot, crazy circumstances, all within God's providential control. The situation of my life where Vince came halfway around the world from Turkey. Now there are other reasons, but to talk to me was one of them. God had a plan with that. God had a plan with that. What is your understanding of circumstances? Is it by chance? Randomness? Fate? God created us and then just kind of got the ball rolling and now we're kind of on our own? I want to challenge you to view circumstances differently, if that's the case. If, you've, if you haven't seen God's finger or God's hand in circumstances, I want you to change your, your opinion today. Now, understand that these circumstances can seem to us to be positive or negative. For me, it was real positive that Vince came, shared the message of Christ, and now I'm following him. But there's more to the story. I talked to Vince last night. I said, hey, I'm just trying to get this story straight. You know, this is what I remember. Is that, is that how it went? And he said, yeah. And he added to the story. 
He said, you know, that was one of the toughest times of my life. I said, oh, you know, why was that? He said, I really wanted to be a missionary in Turkey. I felt like I was finally where God wanted me to be. Things were just gelling great. And this family issue arose. We sought counsel. The counsel that we sought, all the counsel said, you know, let's go back to the States and deal with that. He said, it was one of the toughest times of my life because I really wanted to be a missionary. And so sometimes those, those circumstances can be very favorable. And sometimes they can appear to be really negative. And you can struggle, and I can struggle to understand, God, what are you doing here? What's going on? Possibly Paul's thinking that too. I was imprisoned, now I'm imprisoned. What's going on? What's the deal? I had an interesting thing happen to me. And I'll let you determine if it was fate, randomness, or what. I was a, uh, coming to the end of my freshman year at the U. I had just made this commitment to Christ. And my friend Neeraj and I were moving into an apartment that following fall. We needed a third person to be able to make rent. We knew we could only afford so much. And so we were just kind of keeping our ears open. And in one of my physics classes, there was a guy that needed a place to live in the fall. We're like, that's great, man. You know, or just kind of checking some, some kind of superficial things, you know, like are you more towards like hanging here or hanging there? And we were kind of all on the same page. And it was perfect. Well, I come to find out that this guy is like a follower of Christ. Just totally random in a physics class at the U of M. Imagine that, huh? Random. Fate or God working. And this guy basically spends the ne whole next year just taking care of me and growing me up in the faith and teaching me about the Bible. My first question is like, all right, this guy Paul, he's mentioned a lot. Like, who is he? And if you have any familiarity with the, with the Bible, like, Paul's like in so much of the New Testament. And so for, for me as a new guy, it's just like, who is this guy? And for him, who's been there and is a veteran, he's like, oh my gosh, you don't know who Paul is? And so he just spent hours just teaching me. And I'm so thankful for God working through just wild circumstances. Putting me next to him at a physics lab table. As you go home uh, later, I want to give you some questions to think about. Will you view your circumstances as having come from God? The relationships that are in your life, the place that you're working or not working, the school that you're a part of, the different things, both positive and negative, that have come into your life, will you view those circumstances as having come from God? And then, what is a God-honoring response to your circumstances? We've all been in those situations. We're wondering, why? What in the heck is going on here? Why is this person like this? Why, why is this not working out? And in those times, I would ask you to get counsel. To get counsel like Vince did. We don't know what's going on here. 
But what is a God-honoring response to our circumstances? And then, will you have the courage to respond in that way? Will you pray with me? God, the events in this set of scripture seem so haphazard, so random. But God, to us, as people of faith, as people who trust in you, believe in you, would you help us to view these circumstances of Paul's and of our own life differently? Help us to view them as coming from you. God, we love you. And help us to honor you and worship you, whether our circumstances are positive or negative. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.